as always, Nathan Bartleball. Nathan, what's going on, man? Hey, Nathan, how's it going? Um, it's been a bit since we've recorded, it but uh, I'm happy to be back. It's been a kind of crazy month. I know uh, most of July sort of slipped away. We had a we had an episode or two out, I think, but it's been a you know it's been kind of crazy on our, my end. I know it's been even crazier on your end because you were in the midst of moving. Yes, uh, not only in the midst of moving, I actually I thought that we were going to be settled and done uh, come July and be ready to go, but then. Uh, the schools in our area just made the announcements that, hey, we're, you know, we're going to go back all virtual. And so our school had made a decision we were going to go back uh, physically to the building, which, you know, with everything going on with COVID is is presenting uh, a set of unique problems and challenges to it. And, and I can going through this process, I can understand why public schools kind of made their decision to do that. And, and just go back virtual, but but it, it's leaving uh, quite a number of parents who can't work remotely in situations where they need their children actually physically in school. They're not quite old enough where they can be left alone to to work on work in the house, and you know both parents are working, or you have you know single parent families who need to be working, and so they they need somewhere for their children to go and learn, and so we had made the decision that we would provide that for parents but man there is a lot going into restructuring how we would do a day and what a normal day is going to look like uh in this in this situation in this environment and so uh you know we were slated to go ahead and do one last week and i got literally i got a text it was uh, I think a uh, half hour before or an hour before we were about to record. And uh, my administrator was like, Hey, we need to have a meeting and talk about some things. And so, you know, I was like, Hey, uh, sorry. <laughs> um, but you know, it's just, it's, it's just been crazy with work things that have picked up significantly, but we are here. We are back. We are excited to be talking about Lord of the Rings, the two towers, but before we do that, I want to address the Lucas-sized elephant in the room, Nathan. Um, have you heard these rumors that Lucas is returning to Star Wars? Well, I've heard – yeah, we've heard them. I don't know how – we were just kind of discussing this. I don't know how legitimate they are at this point. It seems bizarre to me, but just as a – talking point at all the simple fact that i guess 2020 is the kind of year where suddenly this even seems like a thing that could happen you know that suddenly it seems like there's enough of a hole punctured in our typical reality that suddenly all these things that you normally would be like that's fake it's hard to tell anymore i guess but yeah and it's i see it largely being reported by a lot of like the smaller like indie not an indie's not the right word the smaller uh like websites where the websites that are, you know, there's a websites like we got this covered, which is kind of a, a clickbait website. I mean, for the most yeah. part, there's not a lot of rigor going into their articles and stuff like this. If any kind of popular personality in the quote unquote, like geek world comes out and says something, whatever that quote is, is taken in. They could be like, I had fruit loops for breakfast and they would be speculating that Dwayne, the rock Johnson is making a fruit loops movie, you know, right. it's about that level. 
but the, I've heard enough of this in the pipeline that it is kind of fascinating. It, uh, what's weird is that there's been so much seeming fallout since Rise of Skywalker released last year. Yeah. And I, you know, we had a whole episode, we talked about it. I was not a big fan. I've become less of a fan. I think as time has gone on, you can go back to rewatch it. But there was so much, the Star Wars series has become this thing that was this juggernaut, and it still is in a lot of ways. There's great work being done with The Mandalorian and all these other shows, and Disney has it in hand. But it's funny because there's these there's this discussion that's happened ever since the last Jedi where people are putting on the table or even hoping to be this case where can we just go back and remake this movie? Let's just redo this. And like, do we get a do over? And it, right. it's just fascinating to me. That's a, that that's the thing that people would not ne- even necessarily want. Like, yes. Did the last Jedi do everything people wanted? No, the return for me, the rise of Skywalker did even less. And, and the fact that it, actively i guess it's another point right it actively did things to undo what happened in right the, the last, last jedi, jedi this right. concept of trying to the, instead of trying to get it right the first time we're spending all of our time on this franchise franchise trying to wipe away things we've already done which brings us to this idea that's being trotted out there yeah and They've got this, uh, you know, they have insiders who report these things and they have someone who's saying, well, the word is that Lucas is, you know, Disney's trying to find a way to salvage Star Wars as if it needs salvaging. The Skywalker story is done as far as I'm concerned. Right. And there are plenty more interesting things going on in the world of Star Wars. We, We just wrapped up Rebels not too long ago. We've wrapped up the Clone Wars, you know, things like that. Yes. And these... These, these shows are coming to fruition. Mandalorian is moving forward. Uh, Disney, you know, they've had some stalling because of what's been going on, but they've unveiling Star Wars and their theme parks and stuff. Is Star Wars really in this place where we need to be arguing over whether Lucas would come back? But Kathleen Kennedy, who's a producer on the Star Wars movies, supposedly Lucas sort of blames her. He would love to come back. And this idea that they would somehow reboot episodes seven through nine or consider them not canon but part of an alternate universe to me this is just a giant fan rumor it's the kind of thing people would love to believe but i feel like there's been so much of this mentality seeping into the way they've been making these movies and making these decisions that i don't know can you like at the moment when when revenge of the sith which i do think time has been kind enough to that as you look back on it it is one of the better entries in the series outside of the original three in my opinion i I think it's a pretty strong movie yeah you take some things if you if you look if you overlook a handful of things uh there are problems with it i'm not saying it's great but when i went back and rewatched it i thought okay it's at least firing in enough cylinders to say this is a movie that kind of stands you know it it stands to to belong to part of the star wars series and And i don't know i feel that way at much about seven through nine but right well and i feel like with revenge of the sith too it's a movie that you could take the name star wars out of it and it would still be a good movie it 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 fits within the canon you're right it is star wars but like if you were to remove that star wars from it like you could watch it from beginning to end and you could be like okay this is this is a this is a good movie outside of that star wars it may title. even be stronger because of the lack of this necessity to have anakin skywalker be this sort of thing that has to grow into darth vader yeah but what we're talking about here is this concept that george lucas a person who Essentially, everyone was so happy when he was removed from the series. Right. This is a guy who has still not issued the original series to be released in its 
basic format, the format he shot it in and, re, you know, right. released it in without all these various changes. And if you look at his post-Star Wars output, to the extent that there's been any, he was a producer and he worked on a movie called Red Tails, which I believe it's on one of the streaming services now. Uh, yes. It's Netflix. Plus, and it, I mean, I I love the movie's heart, but it is not that strong of a movie. And I and a lot of this comes down to I just don't think Lucas. Uh, is Strange Magic was another one. Lucas just I don't think has what they're looking for here. I don't know what he would bring to the table. I I don't even why this rumor is existing, other than the fact that Lucas made the original Star Wars. We didn't like what he did with the prequels, so New Blood was clearly the answer. New Blood wasn't the answer, so now Old Blood is the answer again. And I just, I think it's an interesting thing, I only in the sense that regardless of whether it's true or not, the simple fact that it's out there and percolating and something that people would even consider, and that that if, if Disney execs would even be floating as a possibility, I can see bringing George Lucas back in a capacity but if they really wanted that why didn't they bring him in at the beginning of those seven eight nine you know right what they need to be doing is focusing on making these stories better at the ground level i say that about every movie right this idea that star wars needs to be saved let's it it continues to create the fan people need to stop being fanboys of star wars and Start considering how we can expand this universe. Yes. Tell more stories with new characters. Tell more stories with new characters yes. about different facets of that world. It's really about that simple. And when you see that has happened with the books and stuff like that, we've been over it. But it's just ridiculous to me and absurd, I think, that something like this would even be considered. Can you imagine, George, how, where would you even do? What would you even do? I mean, right. would you? Would you even deal with Han Solo and Carrie? I mean, obviously Carrie Fisher's gone, and Princess Leia and and uh, Luke Skywalker again. What would you do? Where would right. this go? But I think things have proved weird enough recently that if you announce tomorrow that we're going to have a Luke Skywalker movie where Luke didn't die and just ported himself off somewhere, or has been only pretending to be a Force ghost, I might not be that surprised. Right. Right. <laughs> Well, and I think, too, you know, people talk about salvaging the Star Wars series. You know, when when people usually talk about salvaging things, it's usually in a financial means, you know, like, oh, we, you know, we did this first movie and it did okay uh, enough for us to get a second one. And then we did a second one and it was like, oh, no, it didn't do great at all. And but we had this three part series. And so, you know, we've got to do something to salvage this thing. You know, it's usually within the context of. Financial, you know, Lucasfilm, the Star Wars franchise is not suffering for money, people. Um, clearly, you know, you went out to see this movie. You're going to see it again in some form or capacity, and you're going to pay to do so, whether that's on Disney Plus or whether that's, you know, renting or buying or whatever it might be. And so, you know, the the Star Wars series is not suffering. Um, I, I look at it in this terms. You know, we, we talked about. If they, I mean, if there's any series out there that needs a reboot, um, can we can we reboot and redo The Hobbit? Um, you know, the, I feel like I can sit down and I can watch all of the Star Wars movies. I can I can watch the originals. I can watch those uh, intermittent ones with Solo and uh, Rogue One. I can watch. Um, the the prequels I can watch the new ones that came out and and I'm satisfied with those storylines it's a beginning it's an end it's some of them are better than others but I can sit there and I can watch all of them and I could do it again and again 
I, I'm sorry. I, I can sit down and I can watch the first movie of The Hobbit and that's it. Like I can I can watch An Unexpected Journey and that's the only one I can watch in that series. Um, so I feel like if, if Hollywood's concerned with rebooting anything, they should look to reboot The Hobbit um, and bring in some new blood for that because, um, you know, when you talk about movies that are disasters, I think I think that's at the top of the list versus anything else. Agreed. And my final word on this, just because I was reading this article, and I think this is all gobbledygook, but again, it's the kind of what I think we've noticed. If you look at some of the things that found the way their, their way into these previous Star Wars movies, particularly the last three, I think that's one of the weaknesses of them is that they have been allowed to try and strain things in that don't make any sense, trying to bring the emperor back, you know, and things like this, like these aren't necessarily good decisions. And so, but they come from this, they, they, they spend so much mental energy figuring out how to do this. And so they're, this whole thing though, feels very much like it's made by fans because they're referencing, you know, do, do producers and money people care that much about the interconnectedness of the mythology? You know, they're like, well, in, in Star Wars Rebels, we introduced the idea of the veil of the force, which connects all of time and space. And so they're saying that there are these mirrors that do, that are on, I guess, Exegol in the last movie, right. you know, like that Palpatine has somehow used these mirrors to journey to other realities. And so the reality in which he is there with Ray is a separate reality where he is able to exist, but he actually died in the Star Wars <laughs> canon that you know of. So if they want to bring Luke Skywalker back, this actually does seem feasible then they can just introduce this idea of these which i think is also dumb right right but the tale of the force idea that if we get another movie where luke skywalker is back they could just reference somehow that it was created they can have ray jump out of a portal somewhere right which starts to feel very mcu and does yeah. kind of feel like the so take back what I said. I don't. I'm, I'm no more for it than I was five minutes ago. But that does sound like something that Lucas and Disney could cook up together. I think they just need to stop making Star Wars movies uh, along this vein. Let the Skywalker thing die. Was Rise of Skywalker great? I don't think so. Was that last trilogy great? No, I don't think so. But you did what you did, and I feel like you're just going to keep making it worse. <laughs> it's like that kid who's done a piece of art, and they're like, "Oh, let me just tape this piece." I, this paper on top of it and I'll just paint over it. And right. then, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't work. Oh, uh, too funny. Um, well, we are, uh, you know, here, I know we spent some time talking about that, but, but I just, you know, you and I had, had kind of seen it and we're like, Oh my goodness, what's going on? You know, our, and so, you know, I just wanted to bring that up and talk about it, but, we are here to talk about the two towers. We we dedicated so much time uh, to talking about Lord of the Rings, and we had so many people who who loved the episode, um, even people who weren't able to join us for our live. Um, and then I had some people afterwards who were like, "Oh my gosh, I didn't know you were doing a live one. I would have loved to have joined." Um, you know, because they're just they're so far behind in where we do the podcast. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do this one, and then we're going to leave about. Um, I'm going to say let's leave three weeks, Nathan, before we do our live one. So that will give some people a chance to get caught up with some of the episodes and series. We haven't been recording them all, uh, you know, one by one uh, at this point. We haven't been doing one week at a time. So I think this will give some people a chance to catch up. Um, we have a, a special one we want to try to do next week. I'm not going to uh, 
exposed that one yet just in case we can't quite pull it off. But I'm looking forward to that one if we can. And then we'll do one more and then the week after we'll go ahead and we'll do our live. And what we'll do is we'll just we'll make sure that we post all over our uh, Facebook page about this live episode that we want to do for the Lord of the Rings, the two towers. Um, one of the things that I think we'll do just slightly different, Nathan, is, is I, you and I spent uh, well over an hour. Was it close to an hour and a half talking about the fellowship last time? It might have been. It's yeah. been a bit. It, it has. It's actually been a bit since I actually even read reread the two towers for this episode yes. that we're doing now. Yes. Um, but uh, I, I want to talk about the two towers, but I, I want to um, just do some general thoughts. So we're actually, we're going to keep this one just a little shorter with the two towers because I'm really excited um, after the live one that we did to, to get in with our, our live listener base and, and talk with them about that. And so, um, again, I want to talk about it, but uh, we're going to keep this one just a little shorter. So I'm intentionally going to look at the time. And so, Nathan, I'm going to give us about 45 minutes to talk about some some of the things that um, you and I uh, just enjoyed about this and uh, going into it. And so um, the, the first thing uh, that I, I do want to say, and I want to reiterate this from... Uh, what we said last time is, you know, we we need to remember that um, this was the basis for much of the fantasy that we have today. And so regardless of your thoughts on it, I mean, I, I love the Lord of the Rings series. I think it's a fantastic series. It is so rereadable for me. Um, I can go back to it time and time again. In fact, I have. Uh, my wife reads it every year because she teaches it in her school. And so it, it has such a high rereadability factor to it. Um, and there are people who, who don't think it's that great. And I, I can totally appreciate that. Um, you know, it, it isn't uh, for everyone. But, but when you look and consider the field of what fantasy has become today, a lot of that has to, you know, tip its hat and give its nod and due to the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Gary Gygax, uh, who invented Dungeons and Dragons, has said on many occasions that he took much of his work from what Tolkien did in in his books. Uh, J.K. Rowling sa- has said on numerous occasions that. Uh, inspirations that she had from for certain things in Harry Potter came from her reading of Lord of the Rings and there are actually little things little hidden gems in her books that actually give the nod to Tolkien and his work and so um you know I I just I, I think we need to start there because regardless of what you think of it um this has set such a high standard for uh fantasy that we know and see today um so, yeah, with that, go ahead, Nathan. Uh, take us away into the two towers. And the two towers, and obviously we know that the way that this was really constructed is as one story, and then Tolkien kind of by necessity, it's got to be broken up and released is what happens. That also ends up being cases where 
when due to the actual publishing process, he ends up under pressure to give a title and he kind of comes up with the two towers as a title, but it's been said, or he has said in previous uh, points or points after the book was published that the two towers is not necessarily a title. He really like loved. It was just that when his mind, he was thinking about it, he's like, okay, well, which two towers are we talking about? You know, he was thinking Minas Tirith and Bar. You know, well, the Minas Tirith and Baradur are possibilities, but it ends up basically it's Orthanc and Minas Morgul are the two towers that that form what that title is referencing, that alliance uh, that the, the Saruman and Sauron alliance. So it's very much a middle chapter book mm-hmm. or a middle chapter story, and meaning that where it you know it flows exactly like the middle chunk of a giant novel. So in terms of taking it in its own. It's not as if it is developing brand new themes that weren't previously in the Fellowship of the Ring, mm-hmm. and nor does Return of the King develop any new themes, particular new themes that aren't present uh, in this middle chapter either. But what it does do is expand those themes and expand the world. And I think that what's really rich about this book, and I actually have a really busted up little copy I still have. Uh, at some point, this was actually a dollar twenty-five was the actual book cover price on nice. the copy. It's very um, faded and broken up. But I gave it to my wife years ago when we were dating. I, I, it was it was an old library copy even then, and it has a bookmark that the library must have been handing out for Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers when the movie was out. The the copy itself is much older than that. So I have my little rugged copy right here, and it, it's just a joy to pick that. This is the all three of these books are in my mind the kind of books it's very fun to just pick up you could even open it up and just read small sections because of because of Tolkien's voice they're rich and enjoyable unto themselves and if you get caught up in the story and read a little bit more that's fine yeah so that is what makes them different than the movie and what I think is interesting for me about the reread and I think I said this about the Fellowship of the Rings is the movies I've revisited so often because I do love those movies and Mm -hmm. It's very easy to sit down. They're long, but again, you can sit down and watch them. And I've probably revisited them a little bit more often than the books, even though I have reread the books relatively regularly. But because of that, and particularly now when my kids are in age where they can watch them, we've watched The Two Towers and Fellowship and Return of the King a couple of times now. I st- you start to get used to the the pacing and structure that Peter Jackson used in his films. Yes. And so when you think back to, even though I have a very clear, vivid memory of what is in the two towers for the most part in the book and then the characters that exist there that didn't make it into the movie and vice versa, I do kind of find my mind reorganizing the events according to the events as they play out in the film. Yes. In the film. And that is very, that's the biggest thing that struck me again is the very, very much how different that is, both in the pacing and in the events that happen because the story starts with Boromir's death. Now he has this big heroic moment at the end of the fellowship, right. but Aragorn comes upon is just coming upon him at the start of the two towers. So that's an interesting kind of breaking point because you have, you have the main action of that sequence is still happening. You know, now in films and things like that, we feel like we have to, we have to end a little bit, a little bit, have a bit of an ending. And I can see why they chose that for the movies. We have to, to kind of wrap this up a little bit because there's some people who aren't that familiar with the fellowship of the rings will they hang around until next year if right. the movie just ends right after right after boromir has been killed so it makes perfect sense for the movie to wrap up that way what's interesting about the book is it gives them extra time to sort of linger with with boromir being dead and yes. 
not just with Boromir being dead, he's, he's, he's been wounded, but with Aragorn kind of coming to a further realization. And he isn't as reluctant necessarily in the books as he is in the first movie. I mean, there's a different kind of reluctance at play, but you kind of see him coming into his own a little more quickly in the, in the opening chapters of this. To me, though, what's interesting is, again, the structure of this story, I think you can make a good case that the films do try to put, uh, they, they always have that struggle of keeping Samwise and Frodo central to the story, mm-hmm. while also emphasizing the other characters, but not getting lost in the big action scenes. Yeah. I think The Two Towers definitely is interesting because not only is it i don't want to say mostly it's very much a samwise and frodo story Mm -hmm. while you still get all this information about these other characters but this battle of helm's deep which becomes the centerpiece of the film is just an event that happened it's a it's a pivotal military event in the story Mm -hmm. but it is not a pivotal in no way does tolkien as far as i can tell in this book use that as any kind of demarcation about a turning point for the story per se. Right. You know, it, it the, the book doesn't revolve around that. If it revolves around anything to me, this is my take, it revolves around Gollum and Samwise Gamgee. Like yeah. if I were to make an, a, a statement about who are we supposed to be paying close attention to here, who is evoking the themes of what Tolkien is trying to say. Now that was probably, that's probably still true of the movies ultimately. And I think the movie did do a good job of putting Gollum front and center mm-hmm. in the two towers film. I think that was one of the strengths of it, both on the, the visual element and not, but let's talk about the book and the writing and the, the, the words, he keeps the battles almost as historical footnotes, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and yeah. that is even more true here. But what is so rich about this is we finally start to get an understanding of relationally, I felt, and I think I said this when we did our fellowship uh, read through, he's telling it kind of like a history, but he is also trying to keep enough of, we are newcomers to this world. So it makes sense to have the hobbits, like Frodo, yes, Bilbo's been beyond the Shire, but Frodo has never ventured beyond the Shire before. So all the information we originally are getting is mostly from Bilbo's experience, right? Mm -hmm. Beyond the Shire. So then we get to kind of go with the hobbits as they start to experience this broader world. And that allows Tolkien without just stopping and preaching or not preaching, but sort of, um, you know, giving a, uh, like a lecture about it. He can let us know about who these characters, who, who these different races are and how they interact with each other. Because while the hobbits have a basic knowledge of it, they know the elves and they've always wanted to visit the elves. They know the, 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 what the, uh, the expected behavior of the dwarves are, but they've never actually interacted with them previously. So in the first book, there was a lot of them interacting with who these characters were because of the fellowship. You know, the fellowship had a representative from each race in it, but the two towers is really the first book where you get to see those races on a larger scale as outside just that meeting that happens at Rivendell. Mm -hmm. You get to see them dealing with the problem of Sauron and Sauron in a, broader worldview way so really the world of tolkien as we know it if up to this point is really revealed and laid out in the two towers to me like this is where he shows how this world is working how 
the horse lords are interacting with the encroaching orcs, how these characters that live in the trees, the ants, how the forest, the very world itself right. is responding to the threat of Sauron. Yes. And so I think we forget that. We think, oh, this is a middle chapter with lots of battles and lots of action, but I don't think that at all. I think this is really where the major building blocks come in. It's less like the point A, point B, point C fantasy story, and it becomes more like the central tying together of this is how this world works. And this is yes. how these people interact with one another. Yeah. And so in that way, I was reminded of how much I liked it. And I was reminded of, of chapters of the book that are, it was very ambitious of Peter Jackson, I think, honestly, to even bring in the ants. Because mm, I think yeah. you have to have the ants because they do have a, they have a pivotal a role in there. Reckoning. Yeah. They have a pivotal role. But he could have either, A, found another way to handle it, or he could have just had the trees do their thing, right? Yeah. Uh, there are ways he could have worked around the sacking of Isengard without the Ents, because from a visual standpoint and a conceptual standpoint, the Ents are, I want to say, the Ents are about as far out fantasy as maybe the Lord of the Rings gets in terms of what you would bring to life. You could also make the case that maybe the army of the dead is the second one, but they are pure fantasy concepts. It's a giant talking tree person, right? Right. Like to make that thing work in a serious fantasy movie, you're going to need some money behind it. You're going to have to have some artistic imagination behind it to make it work. And so I'm very impressed that he managed to do it at all. What I will say is, uh, unfortunately, I still think, that a lot of the end stuff slows the movie down a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's cool to see Treebeard and everything. But in the books, I think that the Treebeard and stuff in the forest is actually very, very pivotal. In some ways, I think it is. I think that Jackson maybe realized he couldn't spend too much time. But this is where the heart of, I think, what Tolkien actually thinks about things. What he thinks about the nature, the natural world. What he thinks about man and man's relationship to the natural world. And what he thinks about man's relationship to himself and everybody else i and and even to the spiritual i think are really handled through the end chapters of the two towers yeah yeah no and 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 i think too one of the things that really strikes me in this book and what tolkien does is we really are brought along on this adventure we're really seeing things unfold as the characters see them unfold, you know, we see just how far Saruman and Sauron have corrupted these lands and these areas. And, and we see this progressive build as we get to Mordor that it's getting worse and worse and worse. And so it, it makes sense that, you know, all of the lands are, are going to be touched and affected by this. And so, and so you're right. It's not, it's not the battles that are the key themes and that are the, you know, the, the turning points or whatever. They're, they're pivotal for the role of the people who are in them, but in the, in the larger grand scheme of the things that are going on, these aren't the turning points. Um, I think, I think Tolkien keeps it very clear in our mind that it's, it's this push to Mordor that is going to finally solve and resolve this conflict. It's not going to be the battle of Helm's deep. It's not going to be when we get to, you know, um, when we get to book three, that the victory that we see 
um, at Minas Tirith, you know, the, the, the victories, it's not going to be these little victories. It's going to be what Frodo is going through, what Sam is going through and the destruction of the ring. And so that's one of the things that I think he does a great job of in the first book where we're kept relatively in this small patch of darkness and evil with the riders. And then, and then we start to see the larger scale open up with, with the Urukai. Uh, and then, and then we see more opening up as we're exploring more into the world. And as we're making this push more toward Minas Tirith and Mordor, this opening of, oh man, it's, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And we're seeing just how much the floodgates are opening up. And I think Tolkien does a really good job at bringing us on this journey to expand into the threat and into the evil that's, that's taking over this world, taking over this land. Um, and, and I, I do, I think he makes a really, you know, without diving chapters and, and, you know, pages long into these battles. He talks about the battle it's in there, but it's not the focal point. The, the focal point, you're right. It's, it's, is the building of these relationships that are going on. It's in the discourse that's happening with these ancient beings. Um, one of the reasons why in the fellowship, Tom Bombadil is one of my favorite um, characters is because he's an ancient being with great knowledge and wisdom um, as, as you know, much as they're like, well, you know, he would just kind of forget about the ring or whatever. He's wise enough to know that the wing, that the ring can't be left with him, <laughs> you know, that he's not going to do anything with it. And so you you have that character in Bombadil in the first book and in, in The Two Towers, you have those characters of the Ents in the second one, and they do add a lot to the book. And I think you're right. I think with this scene, we see more of... You and I went and, and years ago we saw Ready Player One and we had both read the book and we both saw the movie. And you and I made the same comments that the things that worked in the book would not have worked in the movie. And so they did a good job of taking the adaptation from the book and turning it into um, a great visual adaptation for the movie. And I think the same thing can be said here. Some of the things that work very well in the book would not work in their entirety in the movie. And so I think he did a good judicious job at cutting some of that stuff out, but uh, maintaining the spirit of what was in there. Yeah, and I agree. And I think that's what's hard is it's hard to have a discussion about. I think it's hard for me anyway to have a discussion about The Lord of the Rings without kind of going to the movies because they do become a kind of short. He, he hewed close enough in a lot of ways that they do become a shorthand. And I think even when you talk about, talk to people who love the books, they end up sort of like thinking some, through some of it through the lens of the films. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't personally, because I read the books first, but I do understand how that can happen. So a couple of other things I wanted to talk about. I, the other thing, obviously, that I love about the books is that they are told in parallel stories. So we yes. aren't really cross-cutting. We get to kind of follow all through one thing, and then we come back and we hear uh, the next set of chapter. And some of these things are happening parallel at the same time as one another. Uh, you also have seen, like when when the Ant Sack Eisengard, we only really learn about it when Mary and Pippin tell the story of how the Ents 
sacked Isengard yes. in a later chapter when the rest of the Fellowship, minus Sam and Frodo, finally catch back up with them. But what I think is interesting then is it does have a very, it does have an episodic feel, I think, even more so than the Fellowship of the Ring because there's a greater there's a greater need for cross-cutting of story, you know? Mm-hmm. The one thing you could say about the fellowship in both movie and book form is that it was relatively straightforward after a certain point. Once the fellowship was together, we no longer had the need to be following Gandalf one direction and what Frodo's doing in the Shire. And even because Frodo's not doing a lot in the Shire, there wasn't a lot of that, you know? Once you kind of get to the fellowship of the, the fellowship is out there, you kind of get to follow them all in one storyline and here the two towers specifically breaks up their story. And I think he does that as a way to broaden the world, broaden the number of settings and broaden the number of characters we meet because it opens up three distinct pathways. And in those three distinct pathways, we meet three relatively strong sets of characters. One of those being of course, Treebeard, who we could argue is maybe not as strong as the rest, but he's a very interesting character Mm -hmm. and he does expound on the themes we talked about but then when you have Ro- uh, when you get to Rohan you have a lot of different interesting characters I think the primary one or the focal one for this book is obviously Theoden yes uh, in terms of that 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 plot line so what I really enjoy about what happens when they get to Edoras and I've got to say that visually speaking I think that the movies did an excellent job both visually and orally of creating that world mm-hmm. and giving these kind of Celtic horse lords and their, their giant uh, halls and, and whatnot. Because to me, when you get to this storyline, this is where Tolkien is telling, doing his, he, he's done it himself. Right. He blatantly has retold Beowulf, like literally, right. you know, here's, here's Tolkien's, um, you know, translation of Beowulf, but this is him taking Beowulf and setting it in, his world in his Lord of the Rings, you know, he gets in, in his, in middle earth. So this is the middle earth retelling of Beowulf. Um, But done in a, but done in the way that I think you would want someone to retell a story where they're taking the beats and the heartbeat of the story and they are spreading it through their own tale. So it feels unto itself, but you can totally see how this is the telling of Beowulf, right? That you've got the, the, the troubled King, whose hall, or in this case, his entire kingdom is being beset by monsters, these half-formed beasts. And then you have this hero who's coming in and that basically plays out. You can tell that Tolkien loved Beowulf the way he handled the sequence. And I love that he tells, he hits all the major beats of that story and what's important about that story here. And you have characters like Unferth and the original Beowulf, who's a naysayer, who who, who is trying to coax the king into not, trusting Beowulf he's not as he's not as uh evocative as a character as Wormtongue but that's kind of where Wormtongue yeah. blossoms right yeah but Wormtongue becomes much more uh he he represents that deceiving voice that uh that inner questioning that is almost like poison you know yes. he's the he's the external force that becomes an internal force and this is another case where the Tolkien book version of something trumps what happens in the movie, where in the movie we see Saruman actually possessing Theoden in right. a way. Like there's a there's a physical possession going on here, whereas here he simply sent Wormtongue in. I won't say simply, but Wormtongue is already in there. He is also now 
unbeknownst to most of them, although they're figuring it out, he is basically a emissary of Saruman. Yes. And his sole goal is to keep Theoden in a state of depression, really, in a state of impotence as it, re- as it regards protecting Edoras and the, and, the, and the fold from these oncoming Urukai. Right. If he can keep Theoden in a place of inability and of of sorrow then he can keep him out of the game and that i think is interesting because when when worm tongue is confronted and when theoden is restored it has a much more natural feel in the story yeah like gandalf plays a different role than he just comes in and we have you know him sort of casting this exorcism out. That's yeah. Very, yeah yeah that's a very cool visual scene i see why it's done but it takes a little bit away from i think the concept of what uh of what Tolkien is reaching for, which is this concept of people being able to be poisoned and polluted by ideas right. and, poisoned and polluted by false friends that, uh, that is at the core of what's happening here and is the core of what's happening to Gollum and so on and so forth. Well, and I think the other thing that it does, and, and it almost cheapens it a little bit because someone who's possessed is not in their right mind. They're not in control of themselves. Where this, you are manipulated. And so I feel like the deaths that Theoden feels and the weight that he feels, as, as, as you can see, they're clearly genuine and sincere in the movie. They're more weighted in the books because of that. Because it is more of the ideas that are polluting his mind and that he fell for these things. You can see the weight of his decisions weighed more heavily, I believe, coming through the books because there isn't an, well, I wasn't in control of my body excuse, you know, it was, I, I was in control and I was, I was taken in by the charlatan, so to speak. Um, and so I think you feel that weight, um, more because of that, you know, um, I don't know a ton of people that can relate to a possession, but I know a lot of people who can relate to, um, you know, that sense of, I was taken in by this, I was deceived by this. Um, and so there, I, I think there's more of a sympathy with that character, uh, and, and what he's gone through. The other thing that I wanted to say with that is is this is really bringing about full circle something that came up in the fellowship because in the fellowship uh when Gandalf is retelling the story of of his adventures and things that have happened he does bring in this little section where he where he was entering into Edoras and he wasn't welcome. And so we get this glimpse in the fellowship of something's going on in this land that we haven't yet come to. Um, and that's where he gets shadow facts. And so this is really bringing that full circle and bringing some closure to what's been going on there in this land that we had never heard or seen anything about. And that's, again, that's really something that, that Tolkien does a good job at is, you know, hey, I'm going to introduce this idea of something that's going on in this other land, but I'm really not, I'm not going to do anything about it yet. You're going to have to wait and see what goes on with it later. Um, and he brings us back there and resolves those conflicts, um, which I, which again, for, for reading, for watching the movie, you know, we're not even introduced to that until everything's brought in 
and resolved within the second movie where, where Tolkien has no problem. Hey, I'm going to throw this in the first book and I'm going to let you just kind of stew with this and wonder what's going on. Because again, in his mind, this is all one book. Um, you know, we're dealing with, well, yeah, I mean, it's actually many different books, but we're dealing with one story. And so I can introduce a conflict here in, in my fellowship of the ring and not really do anything with it for many chapters later. Yes. And I, and I agree with that. And I think that that's, that's the thing too, that makes sense about the books is the whole shadow facts thing creates an argument for why Gandalf isn't welcome beyond. And so if you have it, that Saruman's just pulling the strings, then you don't really have to deal with that. In essence, one thing I will, I will say just to, about the book movie thing for me because I think it does bear saying, and I probably already said it in one of the previous two episodes, but with the thing with Theoden is I do wonder, and I don't know, and I haven't done enough research on it, honestly, to know either way, but there is a part of me that always wondered whether or not the concept of Theoden being possessed by Saruman was always a part of the that version of the story. Mm. I mean, as we know, uh, Jackson changed a lot of things that he had he had both written and actually filmed. One of those being the presence of Arwen at Helm's Deep, which in and of itself isn't necessarily problematic for me, but the way it was being done was kind of problematic. She's got to be there. She's got to fight. She's going to, you know, and that's all fine, but I doubt it would have come across very organically. Yeah. And there are there are scenes of her there in terms of like you've seen that that, that it was filmed or at least was starting to be uh, mounted production wise, but it didn't actually come to pass. And that was probably I think the right call. But the reason I wonder about that is uh, Bernard Hill, who plays Theoden, doesn't play Theoden as if he was possessed. Uh, what I mean by that, I mean, I remember, I think it was, it might have been my wife, Jen, or someone else had asked, because they had not read the book at the time they saw the film, you know, after the movies go on, they're like, why is Thayden, I mean, he was possessed, he had no, it wasn't his fault, but but Bernard Hill is, really embodies the grief, and he takes that upon himself, I mean, when he, you know, when he even when he banishes Worm Tongue, he's basically still blaming Worm Tongue completely. You know, you would have had me crawling around like an animal. You would have had me reduced to you know, it's essentially right. reduced to like King Lear, and and he acts a lot like Lear in the sense of the the mantle he's taken on in the film. He's always working off of this guilt that he could have and should have been the leader for his men from the beginning. So whether Bernard Hill is just sort of is either read the books or is just decided to personify it that way. I think what works about Thaden in the movie is that he never portrays him as if that possession happened. He always right. portrays him as if he was completely responsible to it in a sense for everything that happened when he was off his watch. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's, um, Definitely a great, great point. Um, you know, one of, one of the um, things that I've um, noticed as well, there were, there were two things, uh, two characters that I was particularly um, disappointed with in, uh, from the books to the movies. And it was the Gollum 
and um, and now that I'm going to say it, it's uh, Faramir. Thank you. Yes, um, Gollum and Faramir. And and the reasons why I was so disappointed with Gollum was because we get this we get these moments where you feel like, oh my goodness, he's going to be pulled to the good side. Like, like you almost get this redemption scene in there where, where he's like, okay, he's resolved that he's got this new good master and he's going to follow this master. Things are going to be You were talking the film at this point. Yes. Yeah. Talking the film and he's got this redemption moment. And then there's this, there's this scene where he's, he's betrayed. And so he ends up reverting back and you, you have this conflict with this, uh, as Sam calls him, this villain. Um, and I, I mean, I kind of understand why they did it. They wanted to, you know, pull the heartstrings, give you, give you someone to sympathize with, but you never get that sense in the book that he's reformed. And not only do we never get that sense, uh, Frodo and Sam never get that sense either. They they are always talking very plainly about the fact that he cannot be trusted, that he is here to serve a purpose, but that he has been consumed by this evil. If he if there is some potential redemption in him, great, but we are not going to trust him in that sense, you know, and, and we get this conflict that arises and this is why I'm, I I struggle with it because you get this conflict that arises between Sam and Frodo, um, over the, the salvation of Gollum where you don't have that in the book. Um, and, and, and that was one thing that really, you know, reading the book and rereading the book in the movie, I, I was just kind of disappointed to see because Frodo doesn't get taken in by Gollum. He's he's not under any, you know, veiled illusions that, you know, hey, I'm going to be able to trust him and, and my redemption is tied to him, so to speak. It's this guy is bad news. He's evil, but we need him. We need him to get where we're going. And so we've got to keep him around. Um, but yeah, no, we can't, we can't trust him. And so for me, that was, um, that was something that I saw. And again, I kind of, I get why they did it, but it was just, it was disappointing for me because it, it created this rift, I believe between Sam and Frodo that, that wasn't there and that didn't need to be there. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that, Nathan? I see. And I think though, I think if you look, particularly there's a chapter called the black gate is closed mm-hmm. where, uh, and, and Frodo, I think that it is in there that Frodo does at some point realize he, he does, he does decide to trust Smeagol, but he does so. And he says, so but plainly that I kind of have to, it's like you proved you proved to us that you were able to take us this far without harming us. I the one there's two points that I think he chooses to trust him, but he is not necessarily completely taken in by him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the little difference there in the film is there is a little bit of trying to sow a rift between Frodo and Sam that I don't think exactly happens in the books. Mm-hmm. I don't know um, that there's that point that's exactly the same where. Okay, he has uh, 
tricked, you know, Frodo. But the other part of it is that they have established in the movie that the ring is the the hold of the ring and the way that they visualize the hold of the ring and, and dramatize the hold of the ring is that the ring is doing most of that work that's deceiving Frodo, you know? So it isn't necessarily Frodo is just being purely taken in by him. It's also the fact that what Frodo sees, and I, I will say this, and I know that this maybe isn't popular. I actually think that what that Jackson does with Gollum in the movies makes him a better character than the character that's in the book. Because what I think he's doing is the concept that Gollum is evil isn't exactly uh, isn't exactly even what Tolkien is saying. It isn't so much that he is evil. It's that he is addicted to the ring so completely that it, it, it makes him a hundred percent pretty much selfish, you know, and confused. Mm-hmm. And he is constantly, you're never entirely certain why he is doing the things he's doing. He seems always driven by need. And there are moments when it seems like there's a part of his Hobbit brain or whatever, you know, pre Hobbit brain still working in, in that, but that it is always overwhelmed by the kind of pulse of the ring, you know, that broadcast that's going out that you need me, you need me, you need me, you need me right. constantly assumes everything he does. So it's not so much that Gollum is, is, is evil by design. He is evil because of pattern and repetition and because of uh, what's, what's happened, not what's happened to him in the sense of being a victim, but because he desires one thing over all else, the good of everybody else, that he meets and interacts with is what causes him to do evil things. It, 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 it motivates his evil. So I think what Tolkien man or Tolkien has done is he creates a character that is mostly revealed to us through what everybody else thinks about him. Right. Mm -hmm. So we hear him talking to himself, but he's just kind of mad and crazy. And so it's, it's through Frodo and Sam that we have the interpretation of who he is essentially. What the movie gets to do is let us see who he kind of is or was and that the sympathy we build for him is because we're actually allowed to relate to Gollum as a character, as a, as a person who is pulled in directions to do evil or to do good and driven by things like fear and loneliness and these ideas that I can't be good enough on my own. So I need this thing over here for myself. I think that the genius maybe of what Jackson ends up being able to do is that he does make us relate to Gollum, but he doesn't necessarily do away with the potential that Gollum is still evil. You're right. He does look like he'd be redeemed, but he ultimately isn't redeemed. And why is that? It's because of the pull of the evil. So by showing the humanity or there thereabouts of what's going on with, uh, with with Gollum, it also reinforces the threat that it actually that the ring poses poses to Frodo himself, right? What he has actually a chance to lose. So I actually thought that was a great addition. I didn't bother me at all. I didn't think that we need to say. I don't think I think Gollum is a complex character in the book, and he's given his complexity is allowed to shine in the movie even more so. I was more disappointed that they didn't bring that through when you get to Return of the King. Uh, that they kind of stopped seeding in those interesting sequences like the scene where he argues with himself and he kind of just reverts back to being driven by the ring. It makes perfect sense. But as you were saying, as someone who almost starts to feel like, Oh, maybe he could be redeemed. You wanted to at least see them play with that a little bit more. I will agree that I don't think we needed to see 
what ultimately gets moved to the return of the king, this idea of, okay, I can't trust Sam, so I'm going to trust Gollum instead. Right. That, that's, that's a little too far. But right. I think that I, I was not disappointed at all in the way they handled Gollum. And I think it added a complexity to his character that was necessary. See, and I think I would not have been if, if the impetus there wasn't to drive the wedge between Sam and Frodo. Um, I think if Jackson had kept the character as he wrote it and had not used that to drive the wedge between Sam and Frodo, I would have been more fine with it. Um, but it was, it was, again, it was that unnecessary drive because one of the things that was so strong in the book and that is, is talked about all, you know, worldwide. I mean, you know, these books have been translated into so many languages. They're, they're read all over the world. Um, is, is that relationship and that bond that Frodo and Sam have. Um, and so that was my disappointment with that was, it was just, I, 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 you're right. I could have, I could have lived with, you know, the more, um, making Gollum more complex, making him struggle more, making us see that struggle more. Um, but it was used as a divisive tool with characters that weren't divided. Um, and so that was at least not divided because of Gollum. Um, you know, we, you know, obviously, you know, we'll get to, uh, the return of the King and we'll see the splits and the divisions that go on there. But like, but, but their, their relationship is so much stronger than this villain. That's, that's in the story now. Um, but go, going in that, Faramir was extremely disappointing to me in the way his character was played because in the book there is such a there's such a juxtaposition between Boromir and Faramir and and we're given that in the movie in Return of the King when he goes and presents himself before Denethor but but really, like, we're given this idea that the ring has this hold on him just like it did Boromir, but at the last second he's going to make the right decision. Where you never get that sense in the book. He's, he's – the way he's lived his life and how he was raised to live his life is in such contrast to Boromir being favored and the responsibilities and the things that were placed on him that made him susceptible to the ring in ways that Faramir was never even susceptible to the temptation of the ring. He understands its power in a way that Boromir never understands it. And I'm talking about obviously in the books. And to me to see that play out so differently in the the movies was again it, to me he's the most disappointing character portrayal from the book to the movie. Um, and I would have liked to have seen him written more closely to the book than to the movie, um, the way the movie portrayed him. What, what are your thoughts on that one? Uh, and to go back just quickly, I'm not going to read a lot of it, but if you, uh, I mentioned that chapter about the black gate is closed. Mm -hmm. And if you go back and read that, that might be an interesting one when we do our open, thing i would recommend people go back and like the black gate. the black gate is closed is in the two towers it's towards the end of the book yeah and, and uh, from that point on there's a couple chapters where we actually do get that very thing we talked about where sam is recognizing this is the first time he's noticed that frodo has been talking to him in an almost disapproving way 
Uh, and it is because of the wedge of Gollum where he keeps saying, you know what? He has done these things. Don't remember, don't forget he has done these things and he's been true to his word. So he is arguing, look at the actions that, that, that Gollum is taking right now. He is helping us. He is true to what he's saying. And Sam is doing that thing that we also sometimes see people do, which is like, well, look at his history. This is what we know about him. Look at what he's doing. He's going to do this. And so the interesting thing I think that Tolkien is displaying though is that technically at both at different points both Frodo and Sam are correct their viewpoints are accurate to what they're saying uh it does so happen that ultimately Gollum is going to sell them up the river uh I think the difference is what the book allows is that Frodo and Sam don't actually become um divided and and they don't go off on their own they end up they they have differing viewpoints it is true that there's a wedge being driven but they are still together and united when they come up against Shelob. Yes. Uh, to a degree, to a degree. Now, ultimately, you know, we still have that moment where 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 Frodo seems like he's been killed, and and Sam fights Shelob, and I think it's a really strong scene. And I think that that works better. But I would say that the division element is there all the way up until that one break. So I really don't think they they did anything different with the character. If they did anything, it was a simple that aspect of humanizing the the conflict within Gollum. Now the problem with that comes in is what you're saying about the Faramir character. There's this idea that every character has to be troubled or has to have some really deep sort of like emotional tragedy going on within them. And so they they have to be conflicted. And I, I think that obviously conflict does create drama. I think the problem with the Faramir character is he is essentially a completely different character in the films. Mm-hmm. And he's a character, though, that doesn't get a lot of screen time, per se, either. So the way they handle him, he, they play a game that I don't really like, which is that they set him up as the possible villain, right? Yeah. So when we meet him, the, the, the Forbidden Pool and everything goes on with the Forbidden Pool is not really a moment where Frodo has previously been, tr- or, or Gollum has previously been trusting Frodo as Smeagol, and like you said, is on a trajectory that if everything stays as it was, he won't betray them and he will take them where he's supposed to go. Now, in reality, he's been planning to take them to Shelob pretty much the whole time. Right. And here it's seen as, Fro- you know, Faramir forces Frodo to do something he doesn't want to do. And it's misinterpreted by Gollum. And that is sort of what sends him back on his path of, of, of got to trust uh, Gollum because Gollum is the one that will get Smeagol and Gollum what they want and he's the only one that's going to look out for them so in that you have Faramir come off as almost this bad guy you know yeah. he's a guy who's being taken in by the ring up until a point where he gets to make the same choice his brother made and he makes the right choice that's all fine and that might have worked if that character was a fabricated character but I think the problem is there's not enough screen time devoted to Faramir in this version the extended version, or even Return of the King's End its extended version, to allow that Faramir to be a richer character. I do think he gets to be a little bit richer in the Return of the King film because of what they do with he and Denethor, but I don't, I think you have a character in this one, particularly in the Two Towers, that's just misrepresented. They don't give him enough screen time, and he's a much more interesting character, I think, in the book, because here you have, what you do have is a is a, is a man who is He's related to Boromir, right? He is like Boromir in a lot of ways, but in kind of a sense, the book portrays him as the better version of Boromir. Right, right. 
because yeah. of Bor- Bormir's confidence that just transcribes itself into pride is the thing that Faramir doesn't quite have. Yes. And so we don't see Faramir as a broken wannabe version who doesn't feel his dad loves him. That's not really what's coming across here, I don't think. Yeah. In the books, you're getting a character who is seen to be Boromir with a little bit more self-awareness and a little more humility. Not that Boromir was a bad guy, ultimately. We've seen the beginning of the story is Boromir redeeming himself. And here we see his little brother who is sort of like, it kind of reinforces the fact that Boromir you know, Boromir and his heroism wasn't a fluke. This is what these, we haven't got to Minas Tirith yet, right? right so we've only right. really seen Minas Tirith through the lenses of Boromir and now Faramir. And then when we get to Denethor, who's straight crazy, right? Been driven crazy by the Palantir to some extent, he's a dark character again. So Faramir gets to be a more positive. I think he's, I think he's viewed positively in the two towers. Yeah. I think he's a positive introduction for Frodo and Sam to what the men of, you know, uh, Minas Tirith and of Gondor actually represent. Yes. Well, and I think too, one of the things that the book uh, all throughout Tolkien's um, storyline, when you, when you go and read the Silmarillion, when you read through Hobbit, when you read through all of these is, is this, this, breaking down of the family and the redemption through other members of the family. You know, you have this concept where, um, you know, Isildur, he, he took the ring, he didn't destroy it. And so now here is the better Isildur with Aragorn. He is going to be the one that's going to, um, you know, bring the justice back to the land. He's going to be the one who's going to set things right. Um, being, the king of men and you have this line in Faramir too, where you have these stewards who took up the, the role of protecting Gondor while the king was, you know, while the king is not there, not on his seat, not on his throne. And so you have these, you know, the, these men, Denethor and, and Boromir, Denethor is by far the worst. Um, Boromir is conflicted and we ultimately see that um, in his confliction, yes, he 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 makes the wrong decisions and choices, but ultimately he makes the right one. And then you have Faramir, who again is the better he's the better steward. He's the one that you want to see on the throne leading, as opposed to Boromir or Denethor, because of the way he's portrayed, because of his character and who he is. And you see these themes in the families, really all throughout. Um, this story in in this this series in Middle Earth, you know, and again, you you go through all of these um, stories, and you can go into the history and pour in, and and I think these are just continuations of those themes that in in the individual families there are these glimmers of hope, these men that are going to shine through, who are going to be just, who are going to do the right thing, and that's that's ultimately. At least for me, that's what I want to see. Like, yes, I I get the sense of the conflicted character, the one who is, um, I, I relate to that person, the one who you know does the can stand up, but the one who falls, you know. But but I aspire to be the one who is going to be the strong leader, the strong presence, you know, when, when, when you talk about superheroes, you know, thinking about the Captain America and the Superman. Ones, those are the ones that I aspire to be, not the the brooding Batman, 
um, as much as I can relate to the brooding Batman sometimes. And I think, I think that's what Tolkien does a good job of painting for us is that within these broken families are these heroes that rise up to be the people that they're supposed to be. Um, and, and they, in a sense, redeem their family line. They redeem the things that their ancestors have done. Yeah, I would say that I think Tolkien still tries to make these people people and, and make sure, you know, it's not as if Faramir is, is perfect or anything like right. that. And he keeps them. In, and, and I think it, the thing with Tolkien that is different than when you're trying to do a dramatic story is that Tolkien, it, to his advantage or disadvantage, depending on what your perspective is, I could see it played both ways, is that some of these characters really are stand-ins for a certain type, right? So uh, all of the characteristics of, of of not, not the weakness, but the every man rising to the occasion. That is, there's a lot more of that in Frodo and Sam, right? And there is some of that in Faramir. There is no, I don't think, there isn't anybody that I would characterize as a superhero or a superman in these stories because they all have some kind of frail weakness. And they all are tempted by the ring without exception of Tom Bombadil, who isn't necessarily even human. We don't know who he is really. But uh, pretty much everyone else is... Uh, susceptible i do think what you are seeing though is that you have a character what it does for sam and frodo particularly who've only it's it's the remembering that they've only really encountered as far as men go they've encountered up until the point when they meet faramir they've really encountered unless i'm missing something they've mostly encountered aragorn Mm -hmm. and boromir yeah in terms of men, they haven't really met anyone else. Although we've heard that the that you know men are going to decide the fate of Middle Earth to some degree. Well, obviously the hobbits are involved here with these two, but you know that men are kind of you know they they're the ones that kind of failed last time, you know, right. up through uh, Sildor. Right. But what are they going to do this time, and what strength do they have? But really, their experience has only been Aragorn and. Uh, and Boromir. And I, I really don't have a lot more to say. I, the only thing I would say is uh, one of my favorite characters who comes to the fore in the th- uh, favorite characters, but I think in the third book, one of my favorite characters of that book is Eowyn. She doesn't have as much to do here. Mm-hmm. Although I think, again, she forms that she's she's another output of the Beowulf story, I think, where they're taking that uh, the the shield maiden character and sort of bringing her to the fore. And I like where her story ultimately goes. I don't think it's realized necessarily here. Uh, the movie, of course, tries to kind of wedge in a romance that isn't right, really there, yeah. uh, that doesn't exist. That's kind of silly um, in the film, I think. But yeah, I, I think it's a great middle chapter and I think it is a lot more, I think it is kind of the heart of the book to some degree. Uh, the thing about Tolkien, though, is that each story is so rich that I think they are all equally strong, not in such a way that the movie is where movie has to have rising action and then, you know, the, the climax and all of these various things so that obviously some of the Lord of the Rings movies, I think, are better than others. Uh, but I think that this is an exceptionally strong chapter and it really adds a lot of meat on the bones of the finished product that I don't yeah. think everyone is necessarily always aware of. Yeah. Well, and one, and one kind of thing that I just want to say too, is, you know, we, we mentioned Shelob and Shelob's lair. Um, we can't forget that this actually took place in the second book. It took place within the two towers as opposed to in return of the King. So the events that went on there um, happened 
in Two Towers where Peter Jackson decided to end it when they're on their way and then bringing it in in The Return of the King. But you know, I didn't even know that had been the case when I went to see the film. I guess that's worth mentioning. I actually was disappointed because I was fully expecting to see Shelob when I was sitting in that theater watching the two towers. And I and suddenly I'm like, wow, Helm's Deep is going on for a really long right. time. And and then it starts to dawn on me. And I'm like, oh, no, we're not going to. I mean, our expectation that was maybe the first time by the end of that film, and I, I got over that kind of problem, but but I got to the end of that movie and I thought, and I saw several instances where I felt they could have trimmed things or cut things. Yes. And I remember thinking, you know, this is just a little longer than it needed to be. Where is, why isn't Shelob here? Because I think it does prove such a great breaking point, which is Sam thinks Frodo's dead. He has that battle with the spider, which is pretty horrific, which is basically, I guess I should mention, you know, particularly as the horror fan here, that that is pretty much a horror scene. Yeah. In, oh, yeah. That, like uh, Tolkien writes, it is pure horror <laughs> movie when he fights that giant spider. It's pure horror movie in the film, too. That is a nasty yeah. looking spider. I don't know if I mentioned it when we did the other ones, um, I, I might've mentioned on the podcast. I cannot remember, but in uh, we were, wa- we were watching the movies and my daughter was so excited because in the two towers, they keep talking about, we're going to let her do it. Right. That's what Gollum keeps saying in the, in the film. Right. And so there's this idea of who is her. And my, my daughter hates spiders, like really, really, really hates spiders, <laughs> but she has no idea. So she's like, what is her? So the day or two in between watching the two towers and return to King, my daughter is like, dad, I bet her could be a giant banshee or this thing or that thing. And he's, she's speculating all these great ideas and she's so excited. And I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, what are you going to do when you realize it's just a big fat female spider? Yeah. You know? And so that moment when she realizes that she's just like, Ugh. <laughs> like, <laughs> she's like, that's it. I was like, yep, that's it. Um, but I, I, I think it's such a cool scene because it is, for people who think that Peter Jackson who had that history of horror was the only guy bringing the horror to the table, I would say, no, go back and read how Tolkien describes the fight between Shelob. And I think it's great too. That's one of my favorite moments in the entire series because it's, it's, the, Sam has a lot of really great moments in this story. Yes. Not just in the things he says when he tells the story about, well, this is the way all the great stories were, right? right? Like that right. moment when he has that understanding where he's basically Tolkien speaking through Sam, right? Yes. And obviously, I think at this point in the book, if you were reading this for the first time and you didn't know a lot, you might be realizing that this is where you realize that I think Tolkien doesn't necessarily think of himself as Frodo, but that Tolkien thinks of himself as Samwise. Yes. I mean, if there's, yeah. if there's a analog for himself and the things that happened to him in the war and whatnot, that's what I think anyway. Yep. And in that, so Sam gets a lot of great moments, but he also gets a moment to actually like, to be that kind of hero you're talking about. He's not just, he's not just the emotional empathetic one. Uh, he's not just the guy who's kind of got his pulse on what's going on. He 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 fights the spider and he defeats yes. the spider. Yes. And it's a moment when you get to see this. I, this is why I've never really felt the need that, you know, well, well, they had to go back and the one thing that Tolkien demonstrates, which is fine, but the idea that they have to go back and reclaim the Shire, you know, by the time we get to the end of the book, it's like the, the, the hobbits have pretty much proven themselves already. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. They don't really need to go back and clean up Saruman's mess in the Shire to, to, to prove themselves because i think you know it's done all through here but that's one of my all-time favorite scenes and i think that that's the scene that's not you know he doesn't give the big uh beowulf versus grendel scene to 
that story taking place at Eteros. I right. mean, you, the Helm's Deep is kind of that story in a sense, but he and that's close looks more closely like the battle of thermopylae or something like that right, right. like the little little guys against the big guy yeah. but that battle with shelob to me that's that's beowulf that's fighting grendel's mother yeah. in the lair right and so um yeah love it that's my favorite scene in this particular book yeah and can i just say i love the fact that you knew your daughter um hated spiders and you still weren't going to tell her you were going to let her experience the movie as it oh, came that's out, still, I because, did. Yes, <laughs> because because I know so many parents who are like, "Well, I'm going to prepare my child for what's coming," and I love the fact that you let your children experience the movies as they are. You're not going to drop the spoilers in there. You're like, "No, no, no, no." I remember my feeling when I first saw this, when I, you know, when this first happened, and so. I want you to be able to experience those things like that too. And so I, I do, I seriously, it, it, I love it because I do, I know so many parents who are like, well, I'm going to prep my child and I'm going to make sure they're prepared for what's coming. And it's like, nope, they're going to experience it as it comes. And that is great. That is just fantastic. Well, and let me, let me do. And I, mean, I know that's not what you're saying, but just so people don't think I'm destroying my children to the wolves and they are, they're a little young, they are six and eight, but what we've found is we, we, we prep them in the sense of, we are always kind of testing the ground to see, okay, in terms of reading and in terms, and I, I watch a lot of movies, I read a lot of books, so I kind of understand what's in them. Yes. And so we're never trying to give them anything that we don't think they can handle. And right. the question becomes, what are you handling? Like, I'm not going to give them an idea that's going to perplex them and they're not going to have the emotional resources to deal with. But a scary spider, right? my daughter has already <laughs> proven that her, she enjoys being scared to a degree and she has never had nightmares in the sense of where she wakes up and she's like crying and coming to us. Like that isn't something that happens to her. If she was like that, I probably would not have, I wouldn't have shown her probably the two towers. But what I knew what I was going to probably get was, Oh dad, really? Why didn't you tell me? You know, (laughs) a kind of for exasperated, really? It was just what it was. It was just a sigh of great disgust that (laughs) this was what it turned out to be was a spider. But, um, but that has been fun. And what actually my wife and I were talking about the other day is we can see, particularly with with my daughter and my son that they are they're able to kind of think about and process things and and and, and be more creative with the things i think because of being exposed because i'm people like well there's so many great kid things why do you have to expose them to this and it's like well you know that's a, that's a reasonable point but i think if you're being if you're being proactive about it and you're being realistic and you're being um, aware about it, these right. things can, there is some benefit sometimes yes. to showing somebody something that they might be just a little bit too young for not a young in a sense of like, I can't, can't process this, but the idea of like, right. Well, Age-wise. will they even understand it or what yeah. will they do with it? Not something harmful or hurtful. I do believe there are things that kids of a certain age should not be seeing, but sure. we have been pretty careful and we understand that there's certain things they can see so it was interesting you know we recently watched the movie the village with them it was interesting to see them process a movie like that where i think a movie like that works better the younger you are because you don't think right through it all (laughs) right well what i think what they do is they get to the heart of what the movie was trying to say yes without being bogged down by all of the practical things that pop into our heads as we're watching it yes and so it's i think it's interesting so it's either the fact that most movie makers are really only making movies for for a child's (laughs) mind regardless of what the rating is or it's just that some stories do work better with a more uh open mindset we, we i think we all become critics at a certain point right where we're yeah. all we are so taken in by the plot points and stuff, which is what makes tolkien is great for any age but i do think there is benefit to coming to tolkien and 
at a somewhat younger age and then growing with Tolkien as you, as yes. you go. Yes, absolutely. Oh, that's great. Well, we are, um, you know, we, we did well here. I mean, we were going to try to keep it to an hour. We're about at an hour and 20 minutes. Um, just 20 minutes is a Star Wars nonsense. So. That's right. <laughs> Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, we do want to remind our listeners, you know, in three weeks we will be going ahead and we will be doing, um, our live, uh, Lord of the Rings. So, um, we're going to go ahead and we're going to put, um, let's say August 27th, let's say August 27th. Um, we're actually recording this August 8th. By the time it drops, it'll, uh, either be like the ninth or the 10th. Uh, it might actually be a little later cause I'm going out of town. Um, but, um, let's say August 27th, we're going to go ahead and we're going to do our live zoom Lord of the Rings call in. We're going to have a great time. We're going to talk about it, um, and see what our listeners had to think about it. And, uh, don't forget to give us some love, give us some ratings, some reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, uh, your favorite listening service. It just, again, it helps bump us up. I know we're not recording every week like we want to, but we are giving you some longer recordings when we're doing them. And so hopefully that's keeping you plenty entertained. I have a friend of mine who's like, yeah, I'm still, I'm still way behind when you guys were recording in May. So, you know, you're, you're fine as far as I'm (laughs) concerned. Um, so all right. Thanks. Yeah, and if I can uh, real quickly, yeah. um, Nathan, on just to to plug what's going over at Phantom Galaxy. Yeah, absolutely. I've put up some episodes there. Nathan and I are still planning to do one soon. I've got a couple in the in the tank. I did put one up just recently where I had uh, some guests on from some other podcasts, and we discussed uh, Ray Harryhausen, all the stop motion works of Ray Harryhausen. Nice. Um, kind of a big episode. It's a couple hours long, actually. <laughs> and uh, but we cover all of his movies and talk about his sort of legacy. Uh, those are the movies I grew up watching fantasy wise. I think you can see their inspiration on the Lord of the Rings movies too. So we have that. There's a lot of stuff up over there. Uh, and for people, and I'm sure people know this, that yeah, the iTunes is kind of like Apple podcasts now. So if you're going to leave reviews for Phantom Galaxy or for uh, these go to 11, I think go to Apple podcasts. And like Nathan is saying, they really do help. What they do is help expose the podcast to a wider audience yeah. than already has had it. And that obviously helps us become, because we're able to, uh, you know, it it makes things like getting attention from other people or or, or finding uh, people who are willing to come on and talk and, and do interviews and things like that. Uh, the greater the audience, that obviously helps in that regard. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Nathan, this was awesome. Until next time, we just rock the Casbah. These go to 11.